What do you love about traveling? When Martin Sheen went on location overseas to film movies he starred in, it often showed him the stark realities many people have to live with. Coming up, he explains how it motivated him to get politically active in trying to make a difference. I knew that I would never be the same, ever. And you don't want to be the same. The first time astronomer Philip Plate gazed through a telescope at Saturn, he knew it was love at first sight. Seeing that little disk surrounded by those rings, it was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. He shares what we've been learning lately about the ringed planet. Tony Mazzaglia leads food tours along the streets of Florence. She tells us about her favorite culinary traditions in Tuscany. That's part of their culture. That's who they are. And if you don't try the things they love, you're never going to truly understand those people. The flavors of Florence, the dazzle of Saturn, and Martin Sheen's life-changing travels. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. A job that requires you to travel overseas can open your eyes to other realities from the ones you're used to seeing at home. What Martin Sheen witnessed outside the filming set helped to change his view of the world and his place in it. In just a bit, he tells us what opened his heart to the needs of others. And later in the hour, we'll enjoy a taste of the hearty foods of Tuscany. Let's start today's Travel with Rick Steves from Out of This World with a focus on one of our most beguiling neighbors in the solar system. A mere bright yellow-looking star to the bare eye, the reality of Saturn is a large planet with vast rings and a multitude of moons, each one different. It's the planet that most inspires young space explorers to pursue astronomy as a career. Just ask Phil Plate, who calls it the Gateway Planet. As a child, he fell in love with all things space-related, including the ringed planet. Today, Phil is bringing us to the edge of Saturn's rings and giving us a close-up look from inside the planet. Phil, thanks for coming down to Earth and joining us. Thank you. So tell us about your first real look at Saturn. What was that like, and, and how did it impact you? Well, I was probably five or six years old, and I am no longer five or six years old, so I have memories of this that have lasted me an entire lifetime. My parents bought a cheapo telescope, set it up in the driveway, and pointed it at Saturn. And I, I guess they'd seen something in the newspaper or on TV saying Saturn was as close to Earth as it gets all year, so they went and did this. And I remember seeing Saturn through that eyepiece, and even though it was a terrible telescope, Seeing that little disk surrounded by those rings, it was one of the most amazing things I had ever seen. You know, being five years old, I hadn't seen that much, but I was really into science and really into science fiction and all that. And seeing it as a real place really struck me. And I know that I, I'm not alone in this. A lot of astronomers say the moon and Saturn, one of those two or both, is why they wanted to be an astronomer in the first place. And it was certainly a turning point in, in your life. Part of your whole career has been uh, sharing your fascination with uh, the solar system and beyond. And your book is Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. It's like a guidebook for exploring uh, outer space. And uh, Saturn is probably, from the read, it's your favorite chapter. And when you were writing about it, you mentioned the year 2004 was a really big year for Saturn lovers. What happened in, in 2004? Well... If I have my dates correct, that's when the Cassini space probe entered orbit around Saturn. This is an immense probe. It was a spacecraft the size of a school bus, and uh, it orbited Saturn for well over 12 years and sent back 
thousands and thousands of not just images, but all sorts of interesting scientific data about the planet. We've been observing Saturn for hundreds of years, ever since the telescope was first invented. But we may have learned as much about the planet in that mission, the course of the dozen years of that mission, as we had in all those centuries before. It was a windfall of information, as well as spectacular jaw-dropping images. Wow. Uh, that must have just been thrilling for people who have dedicated their lives to exploring the solar system and beyond. So tell us, describe Saturn. I mean, the stripes, the moons, the rings, the density, all that. Tell us about this planet. We have, what, six hours for me to do this? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, that's well, let's I'll just need. pretend you're a, you're a tour guide, <laughs> and we've got about 10 minutes. So we're okay. gonna, we just landed. We're on, our, we're on our way to Neptune, but we've got the afternoon for Saturn, and we're sitting on a ring. What are we going to see? <laughs> Well, you can't land on Saturn because there's no land there, actually. It is a gas giant. It's a planet about 10 times wider than the Earth and almost 100 times the mass, the, the weight, if you want to think of it, is the, of the Earth. So it's really huge, but it's, it's gas. Yeah, you said it's like, what, lighter than water. You had a great way of describing it. If you had a, a bathtub big enough and you put Saturn in it, it would float. Yes, but it would leave a ring. The oldest astronomy <laughs> joke there is. Uh, the planet is... Mostly atmosphere. It does have a core way deep down, thousands and thousands of miles deep, that's probably rock and metal like Earth is, but this is surrounded by a layer of gas that is so huge that we call it a gas giant. And around it, uh, you have these rings, which are not solid. They are collections of trillions more icy particles. This is frozen water, and they orbit Saturn in, in a very thin plane. So if you were to see Saturn's rings edge on, they would basically disappear. They are so thin. Now, we're talking about huh. a system, the rings, that are well over 100,000 miles across. But in thickness from top to bottom, they're 10, 20 yards thick. So it's not, you know, 100 miles like you might think. These things are literally thinner to scale than a sheet of paper. Uh, so when you see them edge on, they kind of disappear. But if you were in them, you would see yourself being surrounded by just countless tiny, icy, shiny particles, uh, literally frozen water ice. And they're not one ring. And we talk about the ring of Saturn. It's actually the rings of Saturn. The moons and Saturn and different effects pull on these particles, and there are gaps in the rings. Some of them are quite large. Some of them are very thin. There's a tiny moon called Daphnis. It's only about a few miles across embedded in the rings, and its gravity has actually carved a gap in the rings around it. And it actually creates ripples in the rings as well. So they kind of look like a, a rippled potato chip. We never expected the rings to be this complicated until we got there and looked at them up close. And it turns out they're immensely complicated. People spend their careers studying them. And they're gorgeous. What a trippy thing to be there. I mean, if you could imagine being there, you've got all of the a kaleidoscope of a visual dazzle. You've got these colorful rings. You've got 145 moons. You've got this giant, giant planet. And as you wrote in the book, there's a permanent hurricane going on. We're not going to be there, but just to think about being there. <laughs> try to explain. If, you're, if you were able to, you know, sit on the edge of a ring, what would you see? What would astound you? If you were looking down on Saturn, 
The view wouldn't be as spectacular as I would like. When you see Jupiter through a telescope, it's got these gorgeous stripes and bands on them. These are basically storms that are whipping all the way around the planet. Saturn has those as well, but it has a thick haze layer above it, which mutes all that stuff. You know, if you go out on a, on a hazy day and the sky looks kind of fuzzy right. and uh, ill-defined, right. it's kind of like that. On the other hand, there are some features like this a hexagon on the North Pole of Saturn. Now, mind, mind you, it's not solid. We're talking about the top of its atmosphere. And there is like a jet stream of, of wind blowing around the North Pole of Saturn that is shaped like a perfect geometric hexagon. And it's bizarre, but that's just the way flowing winds behave. There's something like that on Earth with the jet stream blowing around. And in the center of that hexagon is a permanent storm that's huge. It's, you know, it's a thousand or more miles across, and it, it looks like a giant eye staring straight up from the planet. And so I think, you know, flying over that would be spectacular and a little, a little eerie, a little strange to, to look wow. down and see wow. something like that. You know, it just occurred to me, I love talking to good guides because they're so wonky and enthusiastic about things that I never gave a second thought to, and then it gets contagious. And talking to you about this makes me just really want to delve deeper into it. Philip Plate is the author of Under Alien Skies, a sightseer's guide to the universe. He's revealing to us on Travel with Rick Steves why Saturn is the gateway planet for so many young astronomers. Phil also writes about celestial and terrestrial topics for Scientific American, and he hosts a number of TED Talks. His subscription newsletter is at badastronomy.substack.com. So, Phil, I could talk to you a long, long time about Saturn, but I've just got a few more minutes, and I want to talk to you a little broader about sure. your passion for science and the value. And you've written that you've recently become more interested in the history of science and how science has been misused and misrepresented, uh, as if that matters. Tell us why you care about that. What do you see? I care about science very much. Uh, for one thing, it's the best way to understand the physical universe. You know, we, we know so much about Saturn because we've been there. And we've been there because we sent a probe to Saturn that was based on scientific principles from the rocket that launched it to the incredibly complex detectors that were on board it. And to understand Saturn itself, we needed science. And the thing about that is by looking at Saturn, we can understand Earth better. Saturn has weather. It has gravity. It has moons. We have weather. We have gravity. We have an atmosphere. And so we, we study the Earth, but it's hard because we only have that one example. By looking at Mars and Venus and Saturn and other planets, we can learn more about the huh. Earth. You know, it's interesting because we have parallel kind of tour guiding. I'm an enthusiastic tour guide for terrestrial activities, and you're kind of a tour guide for getting out into outer space. And I often think the world would be a better in a safer and a more stable place if everybody could travel. Is there a parallel to that of how if everybody had a good grasp of science, the world would be impacted? Oh, I think that would be fantastic because we see so many attacks on science right now and we see that some of them are globally important. And if people understood the science behind it instead of getting it from relatively unreliable sources... Uh, this impacts your health, it impacts your life, it impacts everybody you know and love. And if we understood the science better, that impact uh, would be a positive one instead of a negative one. So I think it's critically important. I know this is a pipe dream, but I fantasize about a democracy where in order to vote, you have to have a passport and you have had to pass 
Science 101. (laughs) (laughs) There are some issues with that. Uh, It would be tough to implement that sort of thing, and there would be some some problems with it. But uh, if you have an electorate, if you have a population that is appreciative of the real world and the science that goes into understanding it, I think you wouldn't need to do that. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons I am so passionate about showing people this, and especially the sky, because it is one of our greatest natural resources. The beauty of it is just incredible. And to be able to show people this, especially Saturn, and let me say it just too, since we've been talking about Saturn, I've seen Saturn through a telescope a zillion times. So when I take my telescope out and show it to other people, I just get it in there, get it focused. And then I stand back and watch the people as they see it for the first time. And the joy and the awe on their face, it's so pure and wonderful to see when they realize that this is a place. It's not a picture. It's not something somebody made up. This is a world that exists and is real. And that makes my heart sing. That's the greatest thing ever. Well, Phil Plate, you are mission-driven, that is for sure. And your book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe, is a good way to make that mission closer to reality. Thank you so much for your work and for joining us today. You're welcome, and thank you. You'll find web links to Phil Plate's work and his earlier appearance on Travel with Rick Steves in the notes for today's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. The down-to-earth foods of Tuscany are the focus of a walking tour around Florence. We'll hear what that's like in just a bit. But first, actor and activist Martin Sheen joins us for a little heart-to-heart on how his own travels have changed his view of the world and his place in it. Imagine what kind of person you'd be if you had never had a chance to travel, to see different countries and experience other cultures that have different ways of living. Filming on location over the years has taken Martin Sheen to countries where some of what he saw could break your heart. He credits this awareness with impacting his activism since the 1960s as an advocate for peace, environmental, and social justice. Martin joins us today on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about it. Martin, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you, Rick. I'm just delighted. You know, it's so interesting to think about what shapes us as individuals. What makes you, you, and what makes me, me, you know? Now, your mom was Irish, and your dad was Spanish, and you've traveled a lot as an actor. Let's talk about what helped shape Martin Sheen. First of all, your mom, Irish. So what? (laughs) Well, uh, my my mother was sent to the United States to await the outcome of the Civil War because her family uh, were IRA and... Oh, the Civil War in Ireland. The Civil War in Ireland. Yeah, I didn't think my mother was that old. I was going the arithmetic there. Yeah, the the, the, (laughs) The Irish Civil War. Yeah, yeah, the the Rising was uh, started in 1916 and ended in 21. And then the Republic, you know, was was undecided which direction it wanted to go. And so she she was sent out of the country. Yeah, her father... was uh, IRA. Uh-huh. Uh, he was a, a master slater. He put slates on the tops yeah. of roofs and so forth. They sided with the the anti-treaty. Thing. Yeah. They wanted to unite the whole island. Right. And, uh, so your grandfather and was, was an yeah. IRA leader. No, my, my uncle. Your uncle. My okay. mother's brother. Your mother's brother. And oh, she, I gotcha. yeah, she was. A, okay. There was a great advantage that the young IRA girls had is the British would not search anyone uh, under 18. So so now how did that impact who you are today? Because I really am tuned into this. We are, in a lot of ways, a product of 
who our parents were. <laughs> well, it and taught me what to, we've done. What did your mother? Me, it taught me to uh, hate bullies and love justice. Hate bullies. Oh, there you go. Okay. Now your father was Spanish. <laughs> yeah, and uh, another civil war. <laughs> another civil war. Oh. <laughs> well, in fact, my father was born on the day that the United States declared war on Spain. He was born July second, eighteen ninety-eight. So when he came to the United States, Spain had lost Cuba and the Philippines and a few other spots in between. But there was a quota on Spaniards. A lot of people don't realize this. And so he came with his brother. He was 16 at the time, so that was in 1914. And the two of them were bound for Port of New York, and they got yeah. there. And there was a quota on Spanish immigrants at that time because of the war it was still lingering, you know, where there yeah. was a new... Oh, because uh, of the war, era. they had the, a limit on how many yeah, Spanish exactly, they would accept. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So they got on the next boat to Cuba. Okay. And my father and his uncle Alfonso uh, worked the sugarcane fields. My dad was there for three years. Yeah. And then uh, an opening uh, came to come into the United States, and so he came in through Miami. Oh, okay. And uh, he came in as a Cubano. He was naturalized in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. And started working in the NCR factory. My mother came in 1921 at the basically the start of the Civil War because her family and she had been on the side. So that they was, both came to America because of those Civil Wars, yes, and civil you war, came yeah, out of yeah. that. Yeah. Does the fact a, that yeah. you jumped Well, my the, father's was the war with the United States. Right. My mother oh, was I see, the— right, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, yeah. They had made peace with the, the British. They didn't drive them out entirely, but they didn't want to. They just wanted to— control their own destiny and what they did. But they, they had difficulty deciding what kind of republic Ireland would be. And so that was decided between 1921 and 1923. So she was sent to the United States to be safe, to live with a cousin in Dayton, Ohio, and just to outweigh the uh, Civil War. And she met my father meantime and mm-hmm. fell in love with uh, what she called the handsome young Spaniard and taught him to speak English. And they uh-huh. became citizens together. And they were married in 1927 in Dayton, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. And, so, and their son was Ramon Antonio Gerardo Estevez. Yes, that was one of them. Yes. Who eventually became Martin Sheen. <laughs> okay, so uh, little Ramon yeah. uh, spent a lot of time on movie sets. Um, mm-hmm. You were very immersed, I think, in the Philippines with uh, for months on Apocalypse Now, weren't you? Yeah, very much. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, the whole family was there, yeah, yeah. for most of it. Yeah. Well, what was that like, and yeah. how did that how did but, it impact you? Uh, you know, they had been in uh, Europe uh, with us and in Ireland and uh, Rome and so forth on, on various shoots, but, and even in Mexico, but they had never seen that level of poverty in the right. Philippines. Yeah. The worst I've ever seen in the world is India, but right. uh, the Philippines uh, was pretty close. And you made a, a point to bring your family along. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and your 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 children were quite young at that time. Very young. Yeah, yeah. it was. We, we we got there and. Seventy six. Uh, the huh. film took almost a year. It's good parenting, yeah. isn't it, to expose your kids at a young age to that sort of thing? Uh, it depends, because I learned a lot of things later that yeah. we didn't know were going on. <laughs> Such as? <laughs> well, Emilio and I wrote a father-son memoir, and uh, we didn't know what the other one was writing uh, uh-huh. until the book was published. Uh, and uh, so we learned one very, very profound moment is Emilio talked about Lawrence Fishburne saved his life, saved him from drowning in an accident, a boat accident they had that we were totally unaware of at the time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Martin Sheen's our special guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You know Martin from dozens of movie roles, including Badlands, Apocalypse Now, Catch-22, Gettysburg, and Gandhi. And his TV work on The West Wing and Grace and Frankie. From his early years in the Catholic worker movement, Martin has long spoken out on social and environmental issues around the world. Among his many honors, Martin is a trustee of the International Peace Museum in his hometown, Dayton, Ohio. Previously on Travel with Rick Steves, Martin told us more about the influence of his travels and why he's re-released the movie The Way, about a father's journey along the Camino de Santiago in Spain. You can hear those at ricksteves.com radio. Martin, you've been arrested, what, 68 times mm. for demonstrating, and yeah, this comes right. out of your your heightened sens- sensitivity yeah. about justice issues. Yeah. So when you've spent yeah. time in the developing world and troubled yeah. countries, I mean, yeah. you're in the Philippines, and, and that's not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. No. There was a, a trash heap called Payeta, which was in just outside Manila in Quezon City, and uh-huh. it was the reciprocal for most of the yeah. uh, the urban area's trash. And I was called to... Uh, go there on one occasion. I had been to a pretty horrible one some years earlier in uh, in Guatemala, and uh, it, you know, because children live on oh, these trash yeah. heaps, and they families live in and around them, and yeah. it, it's devastating. Yeah. And but the the worst one I saw was in uh, really because I've been to that one in Guatemala City. Are you been I, to that? I one? can't yeah. imagine yeah. the worst one. Yeah, the but worst I mean, one in... any megapolis in the yeah. in the poor world will yeah. have that, and yeah. the poorest of the poor scavenge in the garbage. Yes, they do. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. they and they yeah. hitchhike. They they hang on to the dump trucks as they come into as the place. Sometimes they slip under, and then it's and them and and, yeah. and the birds that are yeah. Yeah. prowling through yeah. all of that. And boy, that's a powerful experience. Very powerful. You can't unsee that. You cannot. And I remember, my heart is just so cracked open is the uh, the only image I can use yeah. that you know you're never going to be the same and you're not going to get away with this. There is something is going to be different. You're going to, even if by only remembering it, it saves you from doing some measure of violence or waste or whatever. But more than that, you're you're motivated to, because you see the other two-thirds of the world really, yeah you are changed in ways that you cannot control. The heart is now involved. Yeah. And That's, you've you know, seen that, that, and you've that, felt and you've smelled. That affirms and, yeah. a phrase I always yeah. like to use. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson said, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. Yeah. It makes it tougher yeah. to be complacent. No, you can't be complacent. And you're, yeah. and you're far yeah. from complacent. Yeah. No, Martin, I remember that, saying to her, the padre who was taking us on this tour, uh, who was a Colombian priest, you know, and he went there all the time. He serviced the people who lived there. In, in the Guatemala said, City uh, garbage dump? He was in the one in... Uh, or in the in, Philippines. In the Philippines. Okay. And I remember saying to him, we're going to have to pay for this. And I don't even know what made me say that, but I felt a responsibility. We're going to have to pay yeah. for it how? We're going to have to pay for it in some deeply personal way because you uh, know it. Yeah, right. You lived during this time and this was going yeah. on while yeah. you were alive. It's like saying, you know, people who who yeah. deny the Holocaust, you know. I've got a phrase in your travels, you can choose Mazatlan or you can choose Managua. You know, if you choose Mazatlan, it's easy. You're going to get a tan on the beach and you're going to drink <laughs> or margaritas sunburn. or sunburn. <laughs> but, you know, for the same time and the same money, you could go to Managua, Managua. <laughs> and then you can be have your heart cracked open, like you yes. got to say. Yeah. So now yeah. you've made movies in Mexico, Catch-22, and yeah. The Catholics in Ireland. Yeah. 
and uh, Badlands in Colorado, Cassandra Crossing in Rome. When you think back on those experiences, Martin, what lasting souvenirs do you take away that from that as a, as a caring person who's traveled? I don't always know what the effect is on my kids. I sense right. it sometimes. Right. But I, I cannot deny what uh, has uh, happened to me, what, ch- what changes with me in third world. And that is the sense of, of responsibility to at least acknowledge it and let your mind and your heart lead you to, you know, the better part of yourself, for lack of a, a better term. In other words, I knew that I would never be the same, ever. And you don't want to be the same. When you know these things, particularly as, as an artist, as an actor, we call so often on our personal experiences. And those experiences are not just memory. They are part of our whole being. Right. They're part of... The, you can't huh. separate... You know, as a phrase I use is uh, our effort is to unite the will of the spirit with the work of the flesh. Even if we're not conscious of it, we have a sense that we are dual in our makeup and that we cannot separate them. And when we're in the third world, we get a very clear picture and an opportunity if we're open and if we're vulnerable. Vulnerable is the key word because from that vulnerability comes our compassion and compassion is the one grace, I think, that changes the world. It's mm-hmm. compassion. It's mm-hmm. about caring because we have felt something mm. and been moved to change ourselves. And as I say, I don't know if I can ever change another human being. Mm-hmm. I stop trying, mm-hmm. but I'll never stop trying to change myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm motivated by that level of compassion. We're exploring the value of travels in shaping our lives with Martin Sheen right now on Travel with Rick Steves. I know when you have been on sets over the years, you've made a point to take your family with you. And I know that talking to Emilio, there's all sorts of legends in your family about how the, the kids and your wife on the road managed. Tell us the story about your wife cooking with a big gang of locals. or what, what's, the, what's, the, what's a moment that you just treasure as a father? I think, well, they're, they're, the Philippines is, comes to, to mind. But before that, in 69, we were, I was doing a, a part in Catch-22, and we were on location in Waimos, which is about halfway down uh, the, on the Mexican side, uh, on the Sea of Cortez. Uh-huh. So uh, we were there for about four months. Four and, months? Yeah. And, and, with the family, filming yeah, the movie. And, right. and I, had a, I did not have a big part, so I had most of my time off. So yeah. I got very familiar with the village and, and the people there. And we rented an apartment outside town. Waimos at that time was a way station for NASA where they would clock in with the uh, orbiting, uh, the astronauts would be orbiting, and that was one of the way stations along the way that yeah. they'd report from Wymus. Yeah. There were a number of Americans there, and they lived in this community, I think it was called San Antonio, outside of Wymus, and we were able to finagle an apartment there for a while while we were there. So we were kind of with an American community. Mm-hmm. But... What was real clear is they were not really making connection to the community that lived there that were part of the real... The reality. The reality, the real community. And if you have kids, no matter where you are, uh, they'll make contact with who's ever there for whatever reason, and they did. Uh, 
That's a That's very normal. practical bit of yeah. advice. When you do yeah. have your kids, remember they're going to they're going to be the social icebreakers in very creative ways. Very you much might so. Not be yeah, doing. and even even if you, you might be led into uh, certain neighborhoods where you wouldn't ordinarily go, but you're going there to pick up your kids, and so you're going to have a, an extraordinary experience of what it is to to engage with locals. And it happened. And there were several families. They were fishermen. They were very, very poor. And they had large families. And they started coming to the house for dinner and for sometimes for breakfast they would show up. But they Mm -hmm. were omnipresence the whole time we were there. And and one of them asked me to be uh, his sponsor for... Primera Comunión, you know, which you need a sponsor in this. And I did. And For what? What uh, was that? Uh, First Communion. Oh, for, okay. Know, yeah. Primera Comunión. And oh, yeah. this little boy called Manuel. And so I did. And it's so memorable. Some little boy yeah. in Mexico has Some, Martin yeah, Sheen I'm for his sponsor. sponsor. Yeah, All right. Primera Comunión. And uh, Alan Arkin, who was the star of the movie, we were friends. And he was a, an amateur photographer, and he liked right. it. For, so I told him about it. He said, oh, can I come and photograph? And I said, of course. And so he did. And, and he took a lot of pictures, and so we have some of those pictures. So this part of the area where we lived was on the other side of the tracks in a way. So we were very enmeshed in the community. Right. One occasion, I remember, there was a huge carnival. We took all the kids, and Ramon got lost. And we said to one of the kids... Can you find Ramon? Five minutes, he had him back with us. You know, <laughs> just, you never worried about being kidnapped or harmed so or anything. All, all of these here. months in, yeah. the, in developing countries yeah. with the family, yeah. Yeah. never, never really yeah. had a serious mishap. No, and it's interesting because there, there was a slaughterhouse nearby, and it was just at the apex between where the kind of the other side of the track started, and we were mm-hmm. on that side, mm-hmm. and we would hear these horrible screams, you know, the animals are being slaughtered during the day, and it was endless, and everybody was kind of used to it, and you'd walk by it, and yeah, they would be dropping off animals for the... And one night, we heard these screams, and we thought, that's so odd, they're slaughtering at night, no. And we looked out the window, and there was no lights on in the slaughterhouse, and we realized that the other side was the graveyard and that this couple had lost a child. We saw the the funeral because we saw the procession. It was a tiny white coffin, so we know, you know. And they, they'd they come the night of the burial to mourn by themselves, and they were... What an impact yeah, that had on, yeah. your, on your young children, yes. I would imagine. Yeah, we all just couldn't believe the sounds of grief we were hearing from these uh, parents. They were... It was a prayer. It was a... Yeah. Exaltation. Oh, it was yeah. a those extraordinary. Are the, those are the the impactful experiences that yeah. that stay with you. Martin Sheen is sharing how his worldview and activism have been shaped by his travels. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Martin and his son Emilio Estevez joined me to film a discussion about the value of our travels. They added that to the re-release of their movie, The Way, which takes place on the Camino de Santiago. It's available to watch on a number of streaming services. Martin, what prompted you to give the movie a second run after its initial release back in 2011? Well, since the ending of the pandemic, there has been a sense of now is an opportune time that we'd missed before. People were always putting things off, but then, you know, because of the pandemic, everything was put off no matter if you had the means or the time or otherwise. So we feel that uh, there there is a need for people to find this possibility 
to not just have a vacation and explore more, but that they can find a way to unite the will of the Spirit to the work of the flesh so that you can have a vacation and an interior journey to your own heart that will bring you to places that you can't even imagine until you go there. Wow. Thank you very much, Martin, for being with us. And bon camino. Buen camino and keep on traveling. You got it. Martin Sheen and his son, actor Emilio Estevez, tell us more about why they re-released their movie, The Way, and what it's like to be a pilgrim on the Camino de Santiago. You can hear their earlier visit with us from a link with this week's show. It's at ricksteves.com radio. Getting hungry? We're traversing the streets of Florence in Italy next with a local food tour guide who recommends her favorite Tuscan treats. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One of the great pleasures of the work I do in updating my guidebooks to Europe is eating my way around some great culinary capitals. The last time I was in Tuscany, I enjoyed an evening exploring the restaurant scene of Florence with Tony Mazzaglia. She runs half-day food and wine tours of the city and made sure I knew about its traditions and what was new and popular with the locals. Tony joins us now from her home in Florence. Tony, thanks for being with us. Hi, Rick. Thank you for having me. Boy, I had such a great evening with you. You and I spent a, an entire evening running around. I had a list of restaurants to check, and, <laughs> and you were right there making sure I knew what was happening in Florence. These are very popular all over all over the world these days, isn't it? You can hire local experts to, to take a food tour. Yes, almost anywhere, even towns that you wouldn't expect. Yeah, I mean, it, it used to be, well, it's a, it's a new sort of phenomenon, but a fun part of a food tour, and what we should say, the typical tour you do, there's probably a lot of different tours, but it's basically a a four-hour, hundred-dollar um, morning experience that could be end up being an early lunch because you're going to go by five or six places, right? It's a late breakfast and an early lunch. It's a progressive brunch, basically. You don't <laughs> want anybody to start your tour with a full stomach, that's for sure. Please come hungry. Okay. <laughs> and just very quickly, I would imagine there's a similar kind of template for a food tour. Uh, you could go to a bakery, you could go to the market, uh, try a pastry, do some wine tasting, and and uh, maybe some gelato, right? That sort of thing. Yes. Um, Those are the highlights, I would say. And then there's always some seasonal things as well. I think a fun dimension of that that's probably unheralded is a chance to hang out with a local like you, often an American expat that's really gotten into the local scene and is well-connected with local merchants and artisans. Tell us about the kind of people that's a byproduct of tasting the food that you'll get to meet on a food tour. I I have the fortune of doing my tours in the San Lorenzo neighborhood, and those are all people that I've known for 20, 21 years now. And I'm absolutely in love with the baker. His name is Ramo. Ramo and his sister Ivana are the, the I, would, I guess I could say they're the bread and butter of uh, the yeah, San Lorenzo neighborhood. They are yeah. the, their bread is served in many of the sandwich shops and the restaurants, in the wine shops, in the little crostini, in the little bottoncini. I, I miss them. I haven't seen them in almost a month now. I've been traveling. Oh, yeah. And that's the first thing I want to do when I go back to Florence or come home to Florence. I love it. I love the way you say all those words. I wish I could speak Italian. <laughs> say, 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 give me that oh, little you. rundown of beautiful, tasty treats you could buy in a bakery. Close your eyes okay. and just think of them. Okay. Okay. At the, at the forno, I like to have the schiacciata ripiena. My favorite is the one with salsiccia e stracchino, sausage and stracchino cheese. I also love the gorgonzola mella, which is gorgonzola and apple. And then they also make a uh, carciofo e parmigiano, which is fantastic. And then they also make fried dough called coccoli. 
And I love to get the coccoli with a little bit of stracchino cheese and prosciutto. It's a classic. Uh, okay, now I need to go back to Italy immediately. Nice. Doesn't, doesn't, it, doesn't it kind of break your tour guiding heart when somebody travels all the way to Italy and then they just have spaghetti bolognese every night or they just have a, a, a pizza with pepperoni on it, you know? It absolutely breaks my heart, and yes. <laughs> you know, if you don't know the name on the menu, that's a good thing, you know. Right, exactly. Because don't it's, be it's afraid. probably local. If it's a good restaurant, it's local and it's seasonal, and that's really important. It's so important, and I'm glad you said that because I try to serve things on the tour that get people out of their comfort zone. I'm not serving bruschetta. Right. I'm not serving, and that's how you pronounce it. I'm not serving, no. uh, you know, bolognese sauce. I'm not no. serving pizza. I'm not going to hire you to give me a spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I've come around to the realization lately, Tony, that mm-hmm. culture shock is is not something you try to avoid. Try something new. You don't need to like it. It's just very interesting to have sampled something that all the people in that neighborhood like, that they've been eating for centuries. That's part of their culture. That's who they are. And if you don't try the things they love, you're never going to truly understand those people. Something else that's very interesting to me, Tony, is that when we think of Italian food, we think Italian food. But Italians, they don't go out for Italian food. They're Mm -hmm. eating still food from Italy, but different regions. And there's a real passion for every region. And restaurants will be known as a regional restaurant. And that's kind of going out. That's kind of going ethnic, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, we often will travel to other parts of Italy and rave about the food, but also when we get home, we're so happy to have our unsalted bread in Florence. And No, that, so there's my, that's a good transition. <laughs> Let's talk about Tuscany. Uh, yes. Florence is the major city, the leading city, the biggest city in Tuscany. And what is it famous for? I mean, uh, every city, every great city has the food it's recognized for. Florence has a lot of tourism, but with or without the tourism, it's got this this foundation of its own cuisine? Our our cuisine, the majority of it is actually, um, sono piatti poveri. It's the, I can't, I'm blanking out on how to say it. The poverty is sort of based on the the hard times of the past when people didn't have a lot of food and they had to eat yesterday's bread or something like that. Yes, thank you. So it's, it's not about presentation. It's about flavor. It's about fresh ingredients. It's about exalting a few ingredients, not trying to cover up one thing with sauces and tons of garlic Uh, and all those things. So most of your recipes in Tuscany and Florence in particular are going to have maybe four to five ingredients. And one ingredient is going to have a strong flavor. The rest are going to just exalt that flavor. Hmm. Oh, I like that. One one gets to have the microphone and be in the front of the stage. Yes, yes. And the others are like the, yeah, they're the backup singers. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's not a boy band. There is definitely a lead singer. No, No, you got a lead singer and then you got the pips. All right. (laughs) This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're exploring food delights of Florence right now with Tony Mazzaglia. She runs a company called Taste Florence. Tony links to her favorite eateries and markets and wine bars and viewpoints in Florence on her website. That's tasteflorence.com. So, Tony, we're going through some Florence delights. I think a big thing about Tuscany is the beef. When we think Chianana beef, we're thinking uh, beefsteak alla Fiorentina, right? Pardon my Italian, but when you see <laughs> alla Fiorentina, that's uh, Florentine style, and that's a big deal. It is. Oh, boy, is it ever. Everyone loves the Florentine steak. It's the pride and joy of every menu. Not everyone does it well, but the Florentine steak, it's, it's the kind of steak you share with two or three mm. people. I it's usually it. going to weigh quite a bit, about a kilo. We went together to Ristoro di Cambi, I think. Yes. 
C-A-M-B-I. I will spell that one for people. It's on the other side of the river. It's a 10-minute walk from all the action. And I love it because they bring you the cut of red meat. And they make they tell you how much that's going to be and you know how yes. much that's going to cost by the kilo. And you can share it. So you could get one big T-bone steak for four people. And then you can supplement that with beautiful side dishes. Yes. Did you have beans with it or potatoes? Do you remember mm. what you like with it? Mm. <laughs> red wine. That's what I like yeah. with it. Red wine and Good red answer. steak. And, uh, <laughs> and grilled rare. Grilled yes. more rare than what most Americans would go for. And I would remind you, kind of go with them. They know they're not going to yeah. bring it to you raw, but go with what they recommend. Oh, also, and they're not going to um, bring it to you well done because they will kick you out of the restaurant. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, that would be that would be a sacrilege. They would. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. They get very, very upset. And. There's that cuisine of, 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 of the old days of poverty. Yeah. So you've got soups, you've got ribolita. And ribolita is kind of going back to the poor days, isn't it? That's a, sort of a bread soup. It all ties together because we have this unsalted bread, and mm-hmm. salt is what preserves your bread. So if you have unsalted bread, your bread goes stale rather quickly. And bread is a luxury. So if you have bread and it goes stale, you're not going to throw that bread away. You're going to invent recipes to use Mm -hmm. that bread. So we have tons of recipes. We have these beautiful soups, ribolita, which translates to reboiled. It's a vegetable and bean and kale soup. And then the bread soaks up that broth and it turns into this nice, what we call a papa. And then we also have papa al pomodoro, which is a bread and tomato soup with a little basil. So if you like tomato soup, this is just tomato soup with some stale bread thrown in, basically. But, of course, we make it more delicious because we're here in Florence. Nice. And our olive oil. Don't forget the olive oil, how important it is to Tuscans because they're very proud of their oil. You went with me to a beautiful little district called San Nicolo. Again, on the other side of the river. So many great mm-hmm. little characteristic corners are on the other side of the river. The Ultra Arno, the wrong side of the tracks. But in, in Europe, that'd be the other side of the river. And uh, in San Nicolo, we went to this cool bar, and it had a, what's it called when you have a, uh, you have a glass of wine, then you get a, a wooden board with a whole bunch of different cheeses and meats? An aperitivo or an apericena, and then that wooden board would be a, called a tagliere. It's where you slice things usually. Yeah. Tagliare is to slice. And so that's kind of the, you've probably noticed it's becoming a trend all over the world now, these, these food boards, right? But they're called a tagliere. Tony, I, I've heard that with the traffic-free center mm-hmm. in Florence, it's a beautiful thing because it keeps away all the buses and the trucks and it makes it more bike-friendly and pedestrian-friendly and you can actually hear the birds. It's quite nice. Uh, the consequence for tour groups is we have to park the bus at the edge and walk <laughs> in with our suitcases, yeah. but that's a small price to pay for having the traffic-free downtown. But one interesting impact of that is I understand a lot of locals have a hard time getting downtown because they can no longer come there with their cars. Consequently, the restaurants in the center no longer have that local clientele who are now eating outside of the center more, and that means that restaurants in the old center are more touristic in the evening. Uh, yes and no. I would say that the the traffic or the limited driving zones and parking, really parking, I would say, is the largest issue. Because even mm-hmm. if we were allowed to drive, there would be nowhere to put the car. Ah. Um, but I can say, at least in my my observations, since the pandemic, everyone is kind of returning to the city because we missed it so much. So I'm oh. seeing more locals eating in the restaurants 
And also there's a lot of changes. We still have all these classic restaurants like the ones we've been talking about, but there's also a lot of more modern places opening up. Coffee shops where you can actually sit for an hour and drink your coffee and and bring your laptop, things we didn't have 10 years ago. Uh, The city's changing a lot, and there are a lot of places that only cater to tourists, but these historic restaurants still have a local clientele. They just show up at 9 p.m. and not at 7 p.m. That is so important. You can Mm -hmm. go to a restaurant, poke your head in the door at at 7.30 and go, this is just a tourist trap. Come back at 9 o'clock and it'll be busy with locals. She left North Carolina in 1997 for Italy to research her family tree and attend university. For Tony Mazzaglia, you could say it was love at first sight. Tony operates food tour walks of Florence to the city's characteristic restaurants, vendors, and wine bars. You can find out about her various food and wine tours at tasteflorence.com. You know, one one exciting dimension for Mm -hmm. travelers uh, when it comes to experiences is cooking classes. Yes. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about options that there are, not particular places or businesses, but are there options where you go shopping, where you actually eat what you cooked, uh, what do you recommend for a cooking experience as opposed to the, the guided walks that we were talking about earlier? Yes, there is a whole menu of options of cooking classes. You can take a class where you go to the market in the morning and then cook the food, the ingredients that you bought with your instructor. Or there are other options where you can just show up. They've already got everything chopped up if you just want to kind of learn the recipe, um, even just demonstrations. So there's a whole gamut depending on your cooking level and what you're looking to do, what, what your preferences are. And then there's classes for pizza making and gelato making and pasta making. And I mean, there's really a huge variety, dozens and dozens of schools. Now, there's even a, a few that do the, the Florentine steak, which I think is a great idea because then you get to figure out how to make it at home and share it with your classmates because it's a commitment to eat a Florentine steak if you're by yourself. Yeah. So I recommend taking food tours and cooking classes if you're a solo traveler because you meet new people, but you also don't have that overwhelming amount of food, yet you get to try everything. And, you know, the scene is so ever-changing with all the different cooking classes, all the different food tours and so on, and no guidebook can know what's happening right now because companies come and go. And this is one place where I would go to uh, the Internet, and and there's different uh, services. Where do you find a consumer can go to know what is available in the way of food tours and cooking classes in Milan or Naples or Florence or Venice or whatever. Uh, there's so many now, and there's such a good opportunity. And there, it's not a matter of what's good and bad. It's a matter of what fits what you're looking for in your budget and so on. Uh, what are the best sources of information for this online? That's a great way to put it, what fits best for each person, because not everyone's looking for the same thing. I would say it's it's going <laughs> to sound kind of simple, but I would do a Google search or whatever Mm -hmm. your search engine of choice is, Mm -hmm. and then check a cross-section. Don't only look on things like TripAdvisor. Look at TripAdvisor and the reviews and make sure that a company's been around for a while, but don't stop there. Also look and just Google the name of the owner or Google the name of the company and see if they've had any news articles written about them, um, Mm -hmm. any major complaints written about them. So there's just so many. If you have time to research, then you'll, you'll do the right, you'll make the right choice. You mentioned TripAdvisor. You know, I'm not that big on hotels and restaurants recommended in TripAdvisor, but what I am big on in TripAdvisor is the things-to-do category. I find anywhere in my travels, if I want to know what's going on, who are the small businesses, who are the food tours, where are the cooking classes, they would pretty much all be listed on TripAdvisor, 
And I don't get too hung up on who's in the top 10 because it's easy to, to kind right. of game that. Mm-hmm. I just want to know who's in business. And from that, I can do further study. What's your take on TripAdvisor? So that's a really good question, Rick. I began Taste Florence right around the time that TripAdvisor was a new thing. And so I was lucky enough to be on TripAdvisor when I didn't have much competition. And it's definitely the reason my company took off as quickly as it did. Unfortunately, the the structure of TripAdvisor has changed because, and I understand that, they wanted to make money, but they, they partnered with Viator. And so now you could be looking at TripAdvisor and reading legitimate reviews of anyone's business whether they're number one on the list or number 20 on the list. But while you're reading that, you're going to get a pop-up window, and that's going to be for a tour that is bookable through Viator, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. through TripAdvisor. So it's, okay. I don't know exactly, I don't know if I would call it well, gaming, but it's definitely not totally As a consumer, fair. we need to be aware of that. <laughs> that uh, right, exactly. There's a lot of aggressive mm-hmm. work going on of any crowdsourcing sites where they can, where they can get their commissions and, and net a little more advertising revenue. Tony Mazalia, it's so much fun talking to you because I love to have a local expert on a place that I'm invariably going to be going again soon. couple of last points. First mm-hmm. of all, if you want to eat somewhere with a nice view in Florence, I've always found that a challenge. It What's is. Your it advice? is really a challenge. Um, so we have places, if you want to eat with a nice view just like in any other city, you're either going to pay a lot or the food isn't going to be good. So those are your <laughs> those are things you want to keep in mind. Oh. Uh, if you want to pay a lot but have good food, and I say pay a lot by Italian standards, actually right. not that much, right? Um, so you would go to, it's called Golden View Open Bar. It's uh-huh. a beautiful business on the river. We stopped in there and had that fabulous cheese. Do you remember that cheese, Rick? They're good. I love it. And you can get a cheese was so you can good. get a table right <laughs> over the river, and it's just yeah. great service, wonderful food, fabulous yeah. view. And uh, also, there's uh, on top of buildings, kind of terraces and viewpoints that are mm-hmm. quite nice. Mm-hmm. And finally, Tony. Gelato. Florence is famous for gelato. I'm sort of burned out on gelato because of 25 years of tour guiding. But if I was going to Florence for my first time, (laughs) I'd be looking for the latest, greatest gelato. What's the news? Well, latest and greatest, there's a whole bunch of that. I mean, there's a bunch of great places opening up all over town. But I'm a little bit of a curmudgeon. I like my places tried and true. And I like my historic shop called Perque No. Mm-hmm. And even though they are an old uh, historic shop, they do new flavors all the time. So you're not going to mm. get the same thing you got last time. Okay. They Sometimes they do ones with, for example, curry. It's fabulous. Curry and candied mango. They have one that has toasted sesame and chestnut honey. They do um, soccer tort, the Sasha cake that comes from Vienna. Mm-hmm. So that one gelato shop has a huge variety of fantastic flavors. There you go. High Why quality not? and natural. Why not? Isn't that it? Mm-hmm. Porque no. Perque no, why not? Exactly. And then I love the little neighborhood ones that, you know, mm-hmm. only the neighborhood knows and they've got a dedicated following and they don't have big mountains of neon colored, you know, gelato, but they've just got good quality, honest gelato. As it should be, yeah. Hey, Tony Mazal, yeah, thanks so much and best wishes with Taste Florence. And uh, next time I'm in town, let's go into the Ultra Arno and have a meal we'll never forget. I can't wait. Buon appetito. Grazie. Ah, che bello caffè, con il gaccio di Rosanna fa. La ricetta che ci ci rinella con pane di cella già data mamma. Ah, che bello caffè, con il gaccio di Rosanna fa. La ricetta di ci ci rinella con pane di cella precisa mamma. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Casmara Hall and Donna Bardsley at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Andrew Wakeling and Sherry Court upload the shows to our website. Sheila Gerzoff handles affiliate promotions. 
Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Look at Rick's checklist for what to pack in your suitcase and share tips with fellow travelers. It's part of our online travel forum that you'll find at ricksteves.com. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. The Rick Steves Guidebooks, over 50 of them, are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. That's because we lovingly update them in person so you can enjoy maximum travel thrills for every mile, minute, and dollar in your next trip. Find them at your favorite bookseller and at ricksteves.com.